Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, Joe Biden takes the gloves off. Guess who his target might be? Donald Trump throws a left jab and the Department of Justice responds with an uppercut. A United Nations report on Chinese mistreatment of Uyghurs is devastating to Beijing. Mississippi, the poorest state in the nation, is a lesson in climate change and how the effects of aging infrastructure and a lack of investment can cripple an entire city. And finally, Ginny Thomas. What, again? Yep. We begin with President Joe Biden's speech to the nation last week. You've doubtless heard all the right-wing nicknames, Sleepy Joe, Brandon, and so forth. He may not have dispelled all of them, but Sleepy Joe, he was not. He put himself four square in the spotlight just as America pivots toward the midterm election season. After a cursory list of his accomplishments, he went after his nemesis since the day he took office. Calling out Donald Trump by name, he said this, and this is a direct quote, There's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. That's make America great again, in case you haven't heard. And that is a threat to this country, end quote. It's the kind of statement that some Democrats have been waiting for from him for quite some time. Now, before we go any further, I do want to say something about terminology and language. Joe Biden used the term MAGA Republicans, and most people know exactly who they're talking about or who he was talking about when he says MAGA Republicans. However, it's important to note here that Joe Biden framed his argument about these right-wing Republicans in their context. They see themselves as MAGA Republicans. They have no problem with it. Now, flip that over for a second and ask yourself what happens when Republicans, and particularly MAGA Republicans, start talking about Democrats. One of the things they do is get rid of the IC. When you're talking about the Democratic Party, they drop the IC and they call it the Democrat Party. That's deliberate on their part. They want to demonize the term democratic. They want to demonize the opposition. And Democrats, of course, end up calling the Democratic Party what it is, the Democratic Party. But you see, fellow MAGA people know instantly when they see a reference to the Democrat Party that they're talking about fellow travelers. It's just something to pay attention to, something to take note of, because language is very, very important. Now, as I was saying, Joe Biden was in attack mode, but there's a, there was one thing that he did not talk about, which we'll discuss later in the podcast. The president's speech provided a stark contrast before his administration, between his administration and the Republicans who seemed bent on dividing the country with half-truths and out-and-out lies. Yet it was the GOP who had their talking points at the ready, labeling Biden the divider-in-chief, which is a hoot coming from people who elected a guy who truly was the divider-in-chief. The smug confidence they had in flipping the house just a few months ago has given way to rank finger-pointing in its worst 
pot calling the kettle black mode. They seem to have completely forgotten what Trump did in dividing the country for four complete years. To the point that a substantial part of his base are no longer able to accept facts if he says they're not true. Biden pointed to the climate change part of the Inflation Reduction Act as groundbreaking in an effort to rally disaffected parts of his own base. Of course, he talked about abortion, but in the larger context of Republican efforts to criminalize women, in particular, young women. This, by the way, has already happened as we discussed in previous episodes. One thing is certain, Joe Biden is a fight for the future of the country and of democracy. And we need to be very clear about that as people who would support him. With some states' vote counting apparatus in the hands of 2020 election deniers, the threat is there. Remember, too, that Republicans, especially the MAGA wing of the party, also believe democracy is in peril. Only they think Biden represents a clear and present danger. The future of the United States may well hinge on whose vision prevails. At the same time, Donald Trump and his band of bumbling lawyers are throwing ineffective jabs at the Justice Department, the judiciary, the FBI, and whoever he thinks may have wronged him. He just loves playing the victim since it helps him raise money that he never has to account for. Trump's latest legal offensive is to ask a judge to appoint a special master to go over documents seized from his Mar-a-Lago home. His legal team continue trying to discredit the search and the reasons for it. The Justice Department bit back, laying out in a filing the case for the Trump team obstructing their inquiry. Not only that, Team Trump told the DOJ they turned over everything, but it turns out they absolutely did not. But let's leave all that aside for a minute. Consider the fact that Donald Trump has been casual toward security during his term as president, not just after he left, during his time in the White House. Two examples stand out, both at Mar-a-Lago. Let's go back to 2019, when Trump was obviously still president. In addition to a woman who sold tickets to a charity event at Mar-a-Lago that had dubious ties to a prostitution sting at a massage parlor, there's the case of a Chinese woman who tried to gatecrash a non-existent event. Here's what the New York Times said about the incident at the time. Quote, the woman, Zhang Yujing, was found with a trove of curious electronics, including a thumb drive initially believed to be infected with malware, and four cell phones. The authorities also found that she had a signal detector used to find hidden secret cameras. Now, think about this for a minute. This woman managed to get inside Mar-a-Lago, at least past the security at the gate, as it were, and she had with her four cell phones, a thumb drive that's inconclusive whether or not it did in fact contain malware, and she had a signal detector so that she can find hidden cameras. Why would she bring all this to the president's home, the then president's home? I'm just asking. And this was before Trump brought any documents back after he left office. If that weren't enough, there's the case of a Russian-speaking Ukrainian immigrant 
who described herself as a descendant of the Rothschild banking factor, uh, family, that is, who hung out at Mar-a-Lago on several occasions, according to an article in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. The FBI are checking her out, and she could face charges. Let this sink in for a minute. Security at Donald Trump's home and club is so lax that a self-confessed grifter and a fake rich woman were able to, to attend functions there. I had a conversation the other day with someone who knows about these things far more than I. There were some hard questions about all this, and my source was asking why Congress has generally been silent on the matter. We don't know if either of these women had access to any documents kept at Mar-a-Lago. The more pertinent question is whether Trump himself knows or even knew. The person I talked to put it right down front. Suppose a foreign intelligence operation wanted to gather intel on U.S. operations. Once they knew classified documents were being kept at Mar-a-Lago under lax security, they could access them and use their contents against U.S. assets around the globe. That means those people, those assets, could be put at risk because their lives didn't matter to a self-obsessed, self-indulgent, self-absorbed former head of state. That should make Americans very, very nervous. If anyone with a minimal security clearance had handled documents in this way, they'd be telling their story from a jail cell. Makes you wonder. Up next, the Chinese government treat uh, the Chinese government's treatment of the Uyghur minority is straight up mistreatment, according to the United Nations report. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. I'd like to know what you think. Leave a comment on my Facebook page, or you can email me at mark at markreillymedia.com. Welcome back to The Intersection. It's pretty much a given that authoritarian regimes around the world suppress dissent as one of their first priorities. So it is in China, where the government has been oppressing the Uyghur minority simply because they happen to be of, Muslim, of the Muslim faith. When word of the treatment of Uyghurs first became public, the Chinese said there was no such thing as so-called re-education centers. Then they backpedaled as word spread. They then said they were no more than vocational training centers. At the same time, they targeted the families of those overseas Uyghurs who dared to speak out. Now, the United Nations has looked into the matter and concluded that yes, Beijing was committing grave human rights abuses against Uyghurs and other Muslim groups in Xinjiang province. The 48-page report goes a long way in undercutting the Chinese government line that Uyghur rights campaigners are liars and frauds. The report gives them good cause to bring their case before the UN Human Rights Council. They also want to pressure businesses to stop doing business with China until conditions improve. After all, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people here. 
The report is much stronger than many thought it would be. It accuses the Chinese of possibly perpetuating crimes against humanity, which is deep and actually startling. Now, all this was happening against the backdrop of a delay in releasing this report, a delay that was almost a year in the making. That's because there are people inside the United Nations who do not want to anger China. And of course, the Chinese had been trying to cajole, coerce, whatever, uh, the UN out of actually releasing this report. Now, the reason for the campaigner's skepticism does have to do with mollifying the Chinese government. After all, many countries around the world do massive amounts of business with Beijing. And that could be the reason it took so long for this report to come out. And by the way, among the companies that do massive, or the countries that do massive amounts of business with Beijing, how about we count the United States of America? Despite some tough-talking rhetoric, and I emphasize the term rhetoric, many Western countries do way too much business with China to upset the apple cart. But now, a glimmer of hope for a large group of oppressed people. Let's see whether reform, at best, is in the offing. From Beijing, we go next to Jackson, Mississippi, capital of the poorest state in America. Last week, the water supply to 150,000 residents was knocked out by flash flooding. You know, they call that an act of God or whatever. But could it have been prevented? You may ask yourself. Now, right off the bat, we have to acknowledge climate change did play a role. So, too, did the city's fraying infrastructure. This has been a problem and become a problem, not just in Jackson, but around America. Floods in Kentucky, baking heat in Texas, all this and more have conspired to eat away at water supplies and water infrastructure. You may remember President Biden signed an infrastructure bill last year. That money is only now starting to trickle into municipalities like Jackson. Beyond that is politics. Mississippi has been closed-mouthed about whether the state has applied for money that should be theirs from this federal bill. And in the meantime, Jackson residents struggle to flush their toilets, run their baths, things that most people take for granted. And this in a state, by the way, that's under investigation for allegedly siphoning several million dollars earmarked for the needy to Hall of Fame quarterback Brett Favre for speeches he never even gave. Did I mention it's the poorest state in the country? Now, I'm kind of, uh, I won't say conservative, but I will not put all this down to Mississippi's long history of racism, but I'm sure, and I've read a few people who do, who say you combine climate change and you combine that with environmental racism, put it together, and that is in part, or maybe even in large measure, responsible for Jackson's water infrastructure mess. And finally, Jenny Thomas. God, we've talked about her much too much of late. We already knew the wife of a Supreme Court justice tried to convince electors in Arizona to switch their votes to give Donald Trump 
an unearned victory there. But now, Wisconsin too, this is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, really got busy after the 2020 election. In addition to exhorting then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to fight to hand the election to Donald Trump, she also importuned lawmakers in not one, but now we find out two states to appoint electors who would certify Trump as the winner, no matter what the voters said. We already knew about her efforts in Arizona. Now it turns out she did the self-same thing, exactly the same thing, in Wisconsin, another 2020 battleground state. Now we should be clear about a couple of things as I've mentioned in previous episodes. Jenny Thomas has every right to express herself because of the First Amendment. Yet the real question here is whether she crossed a line in advocating for what many would call an authoritarian power grab. She says she's done nothing wrong. Maybe she didn't. But shouldn't Clarence Thomas recuse himself from cases involving the electoral process going forward? I would think maybe. Both Thomases argue they keep their activities separate from each other. Since I've never been to their house, I have no way of knowing if that's true. However, If I were a Supreme Court justice, I might be a wee bit nervous about the optics of my partner taking controversial positions in the public arena. But hey, that's just me. I wonder whether or not Ginny Thomas really has a great deal of, uh, I won't say intellectual capability, because again, I don't know the woman. But she sent out these emails, which, by the way, were identical in Arizona and in Wisconsin, as we now know. And it's almost as if, you know, she copied and pasted something and then just hit send. Now, I wonder, I really do wonder whether or not the woman has the intellectual heft to make a case for this, other than saying, we have to hold our country together. We have to make America, whatever she says. Does she, is she any different than some of the right-wing ideologues we see who have come to, by the way, dominate in some cases, the political landscape? Not all places, but in some cases, these people dominate the political landscape. And I have to say, if Jenny Thomas is emblematic of these folks, one should be very, very nervous about the future of America. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.